Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, and we'll be looking at some of the tools that we need to polish, sharpen, strengthen in our battle. First Peter chapter 4 and reading verses 7 through 11. Hear the word of God. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers, and above all things have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling, as each one has received a gift, Minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. and. We pray that as we continue to worship you and our responses to it, that you would quicken the word to our hearts by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, today's message is titled, uh, Kingdom Gifts. Ephesians tells us that when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father to sit on his throne, that he led captivity captive and he gave gifts to men. And over and over again, uh, the kingdom of God is connected with this uh, pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon all believers and the giving of spiritual gifts uh, to all believers. Uh, Whereas in the Old Testament, the giving of spiritual gifts was very limited to a a small few uh, of believers, uh, in the New Testament, Every believer has spiritual gifts, and there is a very, very tight connection between the kingdom and gifts. And I think Christians today do not sufficiently appreciate the incredible, incredible advantages that we have over Old Testament saints. Now, there are two extremes that you can go to when you think about this whole subject of continuity versus discontinuity between the Old and the New Testament. And the first extreme would be the hyper-dispensationalists, who sees such a radical break between the Old Testament and the New Testament periods that they speak of two kinds of salvation. And they speak of two different canons of Scripture, uh, with the Old Testament being the canon for the Jews and the New Testament being the canon for uh, Christians. And they speak of two different laws and two different peoples. In fact, uh, when you read through some of the hyper-dispensationalist literature, you almost get the feeling that they believe in two different gods, uh, with the Old Testament God being kind of cruel and vindictive and judgmental, and the New Testament God being very kind and loving. Now, if you, if you really pushed them on this, they would deny that they believe that. But, wow, it sure seems like that is what they believe when you read uh, their writings. And so we would um, treat hyper-dispensationalism as being almost as heretical as the uh, second century heresy known as Marcionism. Uh, The church of all ages has absolutely rejected that kind of a radical break between uh, the Old Testament period and the New Testament period. But I think the modern church has gotten kind of soft uh, to that and uh, 
I think we need to be very, very careful about reading any kind of dispensationalist writings or the radical New Covenant theology that's crept up in the last couple of decades uh, or the radical Two Kingdom theology which makes uh, such a break between the Old and the New uh, Testament uh, because they hold to some of the same errors as hyper-dispensationalism. So that's one extreme that we can go to. Uh, but we need to make sure we're not sitting on the other extreme either. And there are some people in the Reformed camp and in um, kind of Judaistic uh, Christian messianism, messianic Christianity, that really sees there being no difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament other than maybe a couple of things. We don't do sacrifices because they said they're looking forward to Christ, we're looking backward uh, to Christ. And there are some cessationists uh, who speak of things as, as if there was no difference in the experience of uh, believers in the Old Testament with believers uh, in the New Testament. But nothing could be further from the truth. While Greg Bonson emphasizes the continuity between the Testaments, especially when it comes to ethics, and I agree with him on that, he also points out that there were some major, major differences, and I want to just quickly list the, the differences that he speaks of in his book. He says that the New Covenant far surpasses the Old Covenant in glory, and we should never minimize that. Second, it provides the believer with greater confidence in approaching God's throne. And I think Hebrews is quite clear on that. Uh, third, we have greater power, he points out, than Old Testament saints have, with the Holy Spirit giving us greater motivations, giving us greater resources for obedience. Uh, there are many people who deny that, but Greg Bonson's not one of them. Fourth, we live in the age of fulfillment, not of shadows. The Messianic age is a glorious age. It is the age when God has destined His grace to triumph to the ends of planet Earth. Fifth, Bonson says that the covenant people are now redefined as encompassing Jew and Gentile in the same body, and this comports with the cosmic spread of the gospel. Sixth, there is greater clarity, better kingdom efficiency, greater knowledge, and therefore greater responsibility. So even Bonson, whom some people accuse of having too much continuity, you know, between the two, and I don't agree with their criticism, even he says, no, there are major, major discontinuities uh, between the two periods. In the Old Testament times, it was only prophets, priests, and kings who were anointed by the Holy Spirit. They're the only ones that are mentioned as being anointed by the Holy Spirit. Now, every believer has had the Spirit working in their lives, but 1 John now says, in contrast to the Old Testament, every believer, every believer has an anointing. In the Old Testament, it was only prophets, priests, and kings, and maybe a couple of other exceptions, like Bezalel and the others who were making things for the tabernacle, who were baptized in the Spirit. In the New Testament, every believer is baptized in the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, only a few had spiritual gifts. Now every believer has spiritual gifts. In fact, Jesus makes a rather remarkable statement. He says, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me, that's pretty amazing, anyone who believes in me will do the works that I am doing, and he will do greater works than these because I am going to my Father. That is astonishing. Okay? 
And if we would stir up those spiritual gifts that God has given to us, uh, then we would see a far greater power in our day-to-day walk. Now, because gifts are so important, there have been people who have asked me, you know, how do we discern our spiritual gifts? And when, during the first years that I worked at uh, Trinity Presbyterian, I used to do gift tests uh, to help people dis- uh, discern their spiritual gifts. I've quit using those many, many years ago because they were counterproductive. And they were counterproductive. Um, I-, I realized two things. First of all, uh, people who have never been exposed to certain types of ministry didn't realize that they were gifted in those uh, areas of ministry. And the reason they didn't realize, they'd never spent any time uh, in those areas testing their gifts. Their lack of experience was interpreted as a lack of giftedness, and that meant that the spiritual gifts inventory or, or tests were doing the exact opposite of what they were intended to do It kept people from discovering the full range of gifts that God had given to them. So I found back in those days people who registered a zero on certain gifts. But as I exposed them to ministry and said, hey, we all need to minister in all of these different areas. As I exposed them to some of these things, suddenly when they started getting experience, their gift ratio registered much higher. Went from zero up to eight, nine, and ten. Why did they not see it before? Because they had never been exposed uh, to those areas of ministry. So I think those tests have done people a disservice. Uh, people would tend to focus on the gifts they already knew about, and then they would neglect the gifts that they did not know about. Now, the second thing I discovered is that the Bible nowhere tells us to discover our gifts. And if you think differently, I would challenge you to show me a chapter and verse that shows anywhere where people are challenged to discover their gifts. And nowhere is the church commanded to tell people how to discern their gifts. It just says, use your gifts, okay? And those two things, after I discovered that, I began to realize that gifts are automatically and very easily recognized when Christians are willing to follow God's commands concerning ministry And as they expose themselves to the full range of ministries God wants the whole church to be involved in, it's just crystal clear, it's obvious that God has gifted people in certain areas of ministry. Uh, And so you don't even have to take an exam. Other people recognize it. So this morning what I want to do, I want to examine 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11 as a general overview of spiritual gifts, and we're going to look at 12 principles that this passage teaches. Now, the first thing that I see is an expression of discontinuity. He says, but the end of all things is at hand. In the first century, there was a major discontinuity of something that was about to happen. Okay, the ending of every last thing in whatever system he's talking about, the ending of it was about to happen very soon. And whatever that date is, it's a very significant date. Now, people miss this frequently because they assume that this is talking about the end of planet Earth and all of that. It's talking about the second coming, but it couldn't possibly be a reference to the second coming for two reasons. Uh, First of all, the second coming is not the ending of all things. Uh, in any system, but rather the culmination and the final goal 
of the messianic kingdom. The second coming doesn't end even physical earth. People think, oh yeah, physical earth will all be burned up. No, it's a renewing. It's a rejuvenation of physical earth, which, by the way, is going to be progressively renewed during uh, the course of uh, this age of the Messiah, but that's going to be the ultimate renewing. And so the second coming is not going to end things. It's going to bring the things that have already started into full flower. And second, the second coming is not anywhere in the Bible said to be soon, near, or about to happen. Certainly Peter does not use it that way. If you look in 2 Peter chapter 3, he talks about the second coming, and he says it's a long ways off. In fact, it's going to be such a long ways off, people are going to eventually think, where is, the, where, where is his coming? You know, we, we've been waiting around for a long, long time. It, it, it's not at all said to be very soon or near. So what is Peter saying in 1 Peter 4 verse 7? I believe that he is saying that the end of all things unique to the Old Covenant is at hand. You see, Peter was writing to Old Covenant, uh, to, to Christian Jews who had grown up in the Old Covenant, who were actually being persecuted by Old Covenant Jews, and who were beginning to wonder if it was really a wise idea to be leaving those Old Covenant ceremonies. And so every apostle throughout the empires, one of the purpose for apostle, uh, prophets, by the way, was to settle this whole question of this transition and this mystery of the, uh, of the Jew and the Gentile being together. But they had to settle this issue of the Old Covenant winding down and of the New Covenant uh, issues uh, winding up. And while 30 AD was the starting point of that transition, 70 AD was the ending point of that transition. The Old Covenant was winding down to 70 AD, and the New Covenant was winding up from 30 AD and on, and there was this very significant 40-year transition period. In fact, 40 years is always a significant feature in the Bible. Now, here's how Hebrews 12 words it. Hebrews 12 and verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who speaks, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken. I want you to notice that that is in the present tense, that are being shaken. Even though the new covenant began to replace the old covenant in 30 AD, in other words, it was shaking the old covenant, uh, God gave Israel time to repent during that transition period of 40 years between 30 AD and 70 AD. And he kept warning the the Jews, if they did not repent, if they did not come to Christ, if they did not see the fulfillment of those uh, old covenant ceremonies in Christ, then he would come and it would be judgment day for them. So there was a coming of Christ, a spiritual, not a physical coming, in judgment upon Israel. So the old, cust uh, old covenant system was not done away with till 70 AD, but the shaking began in 30 AD. Anyway, Hebrews 12, 27 continues. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made 
that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Notice the phrase, may remain. The New Covenant realities started in 30 AD, but they would outlast this shaking of the Old Covenant in 70 AD. Verse 28, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. And then he begins in chapter 13 to do exactly the same things that Peter is going to be doing in our chapter. Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels, etc., etc. Now, a lot of Christians do not realize how critically important the date of 70 A.D. is. It's one of the reasons why I want to do a series on the book of Revelation uh, coming up here probably soon. Maybe my soon uh, <laughs> might be stretched out a little bit. But uh, I really think it's a very, very important to understand God's divorce of Israel, his marriage of the, 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 of the bride, his uh, doing away with the old earthly city and, and inaugurating the heavenly city, the earthly temple, the heavenly temple, the ceremonies uh, of earth being fulfilled in Christ and, and on and on. Now, did that happen soon as First Peter uh, chapter 4 says that it did. And we'd say, yes, absolutely. First Peter was written in 65 AD, and within one year, the war against Jerusalem uh, began to happen. That means that within one year, the old covenant people who had been persecuting the church, they were the main persecutors long before Rome. The Jews persecuted the church they would be dealt with by God and would no longer be able to persecute the church again. And by the way, that was a seven-year tribulation, and the temple was burned to the day right in the smack dab in the middle of that seven-year period. And uh, we won't get into all of that uh, uh, this morning, but the Great Tribulation was going to start within a year, and within four and a half to five years, the temple... Uh, all of the Levitical priesthood would be ended, the sacrificial system would be ended, the rift between synagogue and church would be made final, ceremonial laws, anything connected whatsoever with the Old Covenant that was uniquely Old Covenant would be obliterated. See, next to creation and the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, 70 AD is the third most pivotal event in world history. Uh, we need to understand why it is so pivotal. Almost all of the older writers recognized it was a critically important date to understand. And if you try to apply these words, the end of all things are at hand, like some commentators, modern commentators do, if you apply that to the second coming, honestly, you are making nonsense out of the time phrases of Scripture. God gave time phrases uh, in order to give us clues as to how to interpret the scriptures. And the second coming is never said to be near, soon, about to happen, around the corner, etc. If 2,000 years later is soon, we're in trouble. We can't figure out what time phrases mean. And um, just as an illustration, Daniel was told that 400 years is a long time away. He said, seal up the book. Because it's, it's a distant time. And he told Daniel, you don't even need to worry about it. That's a long ways away. The Apostle John was told that the coming in judgment on Jerusalem was near. So he shouldn't seal up the book. Okay, 
uh, and near means near. It's within a year or two, okay? It's very, very, it's very, very close. And, and so um, Christ coming in judgment on Jerusalem so that the worldwide spread of his kingdom would be uh, evident uh, did indeed happen very, very near. Now, just in case you think this is weird, this is something uh, new for Phil Kaiser. Uh, first of all, I don't really preach anything new. Uh, I'm nervous about any doctrine that you don't find in the church over the last 2,000 years. But let me quote from some uh, commentaries on the book of 1 Peter. Jay Adams wrote a commentary on this book, and he said about this verse, Titus and Vespasian would wipe out the old order once and for all. The full end of the Old Testament order, already made defunct at the cross and the empty tomb, was about to occur. Matthew Henry says, The miserable destruction of the Jewish church and nation foretold by our Savior is now very near. Adam Clark says, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. To this destruction, which was literally then at hand, the apostle alludes when he says, the end of all things is at hand, the end of the temple, the end of the Levitical priesthood, the end of the whole Jewish economy was then at hand. Okay, so that's what the phrase means. Uh, I've taken a long time on it because I know there'll probably be pushback if I don't try to nail it down uh, clearly. Uh, the, the old covenant system, 100%, all things were about to end. But now I want to look at what difference does that phrase make in terms of the central theme of this paragraph, spiritual gifts. Uh, that's the topic here. Well, Joel prophesied that during the last days of the Old Covenant, during the beginning days of the kingdom, God would pour out His Spirit and He would give to the church spiritual gifts. And this would be the sign of the kingdom. Spiritual gifts and kingdom would be always linked. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 12, 28, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Okay, so that means you're in the age of the Messiah, you're in the age of the kingdom, and you are foot soldiers advancing his kingdom, and spiritual gifts is a critical part of that. Now, the second principle flows out of the first. It is that we must be rational and level-headed in our use of spiritual gifts. Peter says, therefore... Be serious and watchful in your prayers. Now, the word for serious is sophroneo, and it means to think in a sound manner, in a sane manner, uh, the opposite of insane, the opposite of irrational, to be sensible, or as one dictionary worded it, to be level-headed. Uh, the second word translated watchful is nepho, and it means to be well-balanced or with self-control. Now, I think that's a great corrective to some of the irrationality and lack of self-control that is found in some charismatic circles. And the therefore makes sense because the Old Covenant, a number of places, uh, pointed out that when the Spirit is poured out upon the church and when these spiritual gifts are given, God is going to increase the knowledge and the wisdom of the church. In fact, that's the trajectory that eventually planet Earth will be so full of the knowledge of the Lord that it'll be as deep as the water is covering the ocean beds. Okay, so the age of the Messiah is rational. It's supposed to be filled with knowledge. It's supposed to restore sound thinking and self-controlled acting. 
Now, this means that a sure sign of a proper use of spiritual gifts is the absence of emotionalism and the presence of sanity, rationality, and self-control. This is one of the tests by which you can evaluate whether it's a spirit-given gift or a demonically given gift. Is it rational? The Holy Spirit always increases our rationality. And that's why Paul told the Corinthians, yeah, you understand it, you're edified by it, but if others don't understand it, then you're misusing your gifts. He wanted everyone, the speaker and the hearer, to understand. So this rationality test, I think, is a key one. But the last words of verse 7 also bring up a third point, and that is that spiritual gifts were intended to help us advance Christ's cosmic battle for planet Earth. We need these spiritual gifts to take over the Earth. Okay? They are not to be used selfishly, but for the advancing of Christ's kingdom. I think that's implied in the phrase, therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. Now the word watchful not only has a meaning of self-controlled, but it's got a nuance of self-controlled in the battlefield. For example, take a look at chapter 5 and verse 8. It uses exactly the same Greek word. And it says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the face. Now, in some circles, spiritual gifts seem to have zero relevance uh, to this cosmic battle of Christ. But when you look at Ephesians chapter 4, you see that it's a central purpose of Christ even giving those spiritual gifts. He is the head of an army possessing the land of Canaan. He's giving spiritual gifts to his army uh, to achieve that cause. And anytime we see spiritual gifts used pridefully for selfish purposes, we're seeing a misuse of gifts, if, if they are even authentic. Okay? The whole point of spiritual gifts was to cause advance the cause of Christ on planet Earth. Now, in verse 8, Peter hastens to say this is not a warfare of hate. This is a warfare of love. Okay, it's advancing and increasing the love of Christ. We need to use spiritual gifts in a spirit of love. Verse 8, And above all things have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Now, unfortunately, in our modern day, spiritual gifts have kind of divided between Christians. But here's what I would say. If you do serve in, in the church, even if you're, if you're serving with love being the predominant goal of your life, even when there's differences amongst Christians about spiritual gifts, you should still be able to uh, serve together. Um, even if they're mistaken, if they have fervent love for one another, in other words, if love is above all things, as he says here literally, those spiritual gifts should not divide them. But when your focus is on spiritual gifts and having spiritual gifts and making sure others agree with you on spiritual gifts, we can easily find reasons to break love. And so even the order in which he is giving these I think is significant. But above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. And the fifth point is that you will never discover your gifts if you do not serve in every area of life. Okay? And I'll remind you again that the emphasis in the Scripture is not on discovering your gifts, it's on service, right? 
As I mentioned in the introduction, your gifts will naturally come to the surface as you diligently serve the Lord. And so Peter says in verse 9, for example, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Now, hospitality is one of the spiritual gifts, but if he was just speaking to the people who had spiritual gift of hospitality, he wouldn't have to add that little phrase, without grumbling. I mean, that's the beauty of having the gift. You're driven to it. You love doing it. You're not going to grumble about hospitality. You want to engage in hospitality. But he's addressing every believer. Every believer needs to be engaged in hospitality, even if you don't have the gift of hospitality. Um, in Romans chapter 12, he gives a long listing of things that should characterize every believer, hospitality being one of them. And he talks about things like faith and mercy. Now let's think about that. Even if you don't have the gift of faith, which is a spiritual gift that God makes a person have just incredible faith to, to, to receive things, even if you don't have the gift of faith, you as a believer must live by faith. Even if you don't have the gift of mercy, you as a believer need to exercise mercy. And Romans 12 says, even if you don't have the gift of hospitality, every believer needs to engage in hospitality. And so we need to draw a distinction between roles and gifts. Everyone has a role to play in every gift area, but not everybody has the gift. Okay, some people discover they have a gift 20 years after they've become Christians because that's the first time they've tried to be involved in that area of service. They, they, they had not taken on the role. And many gifts are latent and they need to be developed. For example, Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1 verse 6, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. When pastors are ordained, frequently they are given some extra gifts that they did not have before. And that's what happened with Timothy. And Paul was indicating, hey, your gift is lying there unused. It's latent. You need to stir up your gift. And so the important question on this point is this. Are you placing yourself in service situation, situations which will allow latent gifts to come to the surface? Okay. Likewise, our gifts can be smothered if we don't have opportunities to express that gifting. We, we don't want to just develop talents. We want to see the unleashing of spiritual gifts. And so if there are gifts you have that you don't know how you can exercise those, talk to the elders. We want to make sure that gifts are unleashed. Uh, for example, if you've never prayed for someone's healing never laid hands on somebody and prayed for their healing, you may never discover that you have the gift of, of healing. How are you ever going to discover that you have the gift of healing if you never prayed for healing, right? Now, all of us should pray for healing for one another. Scripture commands us to do that. But sometimes it's as we begin to reach out in faith that God raises those gifts up. The great um, violinist Niccolo Paganini uh, willed his, uh, uh, his marvelous violin to the city of Genoa where he had been born, but he made the stipulation that they could only have this violin if they did not allow anybody to play it. Well, that was a very unfortunate condition because apparently violins, the wood, if it's not used regularly, begins to crack and begins to deteriorate. And so the exquisite, mellow-toned violin eventually became a useless relic because that gift was never used. 
And in the same way, there may be gifts that are molding under the surface because you have never involved yourself in every area of service. Uh, life withdrawn from all service to others loses its meaning. Now the sixth point is that every one of you has received a spiritual gift from God. In the New Covenant, there are no exceptions. There were exceptions in the Old Covenant, not in the New Covenant. Verse 10 says, as each one has received a gift. God values you, and he's given each one of you a unique gift, or perhaps a unique blend of gifts. Frequently, it's a number of gifts that are pulled together uh, that are designed just for you. Uh, in the Old Testament, Joel prophesied that in the New Covenant, the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all, young and old, sons and daughters, and it's so important that you not bury your spiritual gifts. The seventh point is that all gifts were given so that we could serve. Verse 10 again, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another. Now the word minister just means serve. You know, we got to serve each other. When I'm called a minister of the gospel, it just means I'm a servant of the gospel. That's the beautiful thing about the church of Jesus Christ. There are no elite, right? We're all servants. We're all called to serve one another in the body of Christ. But if each one of you has a gift, and the purpose of that gift is to serve, you're misusing your gift when you're not serving in the body of Christ. The eighth point is that all gifts were intended to benefit others. And there's no exception on this point either. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another. Gifts were designed for body life, for one anothering life. Just like Gary's been talking about the one anothering. I hear that's what gifts is for. Now it means that spiritual gifts are geared to personal ministry. They are people related. And we can sometimes tend uh, to forget that. Uh, there is often the danger of ignoring people uh, when we are exercising our spiritual gift. For example, a person with the gift of um, teaching is a little bit different than exhortation. Exhortation, a lot more impromptu, but a person with the gift of teaching, he loves to dig into the text, he loves to study and research, and some people, uh, you know, love it so much, that's all they do, and they never end up teaching. Well, that's a misuse of the gift of teaching. Uh, or a person with the gift of administration, uh, they sometimes might be tempted to think administration would be so great if I didn't have to deal with people. You know, I li love, you know, dealing with people's schedules and I like doing all of this stuff with intangible objects. And God says, no, it's a misuse of your gift if you're not using it for people. It's always person related. And that's um, Paul's whole point in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Over and over, Paul said that the gifts were intended for the edification of others. Not just self-edification, for the edification of others. And another word that's used is profit of others. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Well, verse 10 gives a ninth point. It continues to say that we are to serve one another with our gifts, but it says, as good stewards. As good stewards. Your gifts are a stewardship trust. 
Now, we all know we're stewards of our money and of our bodies and of our talents and of our families, all of these types of things. We're supposed to be stewards of them, using them to the best of our ability for the Lord. But we need to think about our spiritual gifts being a stewardship trust as well. Now, to me, this is actually astonishing that God would say we could steward his grace. I mean, that just seems so personal. That's something about God. Grace is part of God, right? And we're stewarding something that is a part of God. Uh, to me, it, it blows my mind that God would even allow us to do that, and yet that's exactly what he says. We are stewards of his grace. Now, in a stewardship trust, if you're a good steward of money, you're going to be getting back dividends, right? You're going to be investing it. You're going to be using it for the purpose of others and, and God's kingdom in a good way, and God then blesses you with more. Well, it's the same thing with spiritual gifts. If we're good stewards... God will say, you know what? You have been using my spiritual gifts so well, I'm going to give you more spiritual gifts. That's what God does with good stewards. So do you desire uh, more spiritual gifts? There may be some spiritual gift you wish you had. Well, then the first thing you need to do is make sure you're a good steward of the gifts you already have in serving the body of Christ and, and going outside of the body of Christ as well. And God may sovereignly uh, open up the door and give more gifts. Uh, Paul talked about giving gifts to people in Corinth, and uh, there, there can be an increase of gifts uh, over time. Okay, the tenth principle is that your gift mix is unique. He goes on in verse 10 to say that these spiritual gifts show forth the manifold grace of God. Now, that word manifold is an interesting word. Uh, it's, it's a word that describes a multifaceted diamond or... It can refer to many-colored gemstone, and it's translated as either manifold, variegated, or diversified. I guess the basic idea is that just as no two gemstones are alike, there's no two Christians uh, that are alike in the, the, their mixture of gifts. God did not make us with a cookie cutter, and I praise the Lord for that. You know, we're not just a bunch of clones. Verse 11 repeats that thought when it says, If anyone ministers, let him do it, as with the ability which God supplies. So don't compare yourself with others. You might wish, as I did in the past, Oh, if I, if I had Jonathan Edwards' gifts, then I could do uh, what Jonathan Edwards is doing. And the Lord rebuked me. No, you use Phil Kaiser's gifts. You are uniquely made to be who you are. So, Romans 12, verse 6 says, Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. God doesn't want you using someone else's gifts. He wants you using your own gifts. And if you try to live your life just like Elizabeth Elliot did, you're going to be frustrated and discouraged and disappointed because you're not Elizabeth Elliot. You are created to be uniquely you. And he wants you to be faithful to what you have. And when you aren't, the kingdom is in some sense robbed. Now there's one more thing I want to draw out from verse 10, and that is that our gifts are totally dependent upon God's grace. These gifts are spoken of as the grace of God. And in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 and Ephesians and Romans, uh, gifts are often spoken of as graces. Literally, as graces. Now, if they are an aspect of God's grace in our lives, that means they're different than talents. So we shouldn't treat 
gifts in the same way that we think about talents. These are uniquely created by God's grace and they are dependent upon God uh, to continue as a gift and they're dependent upon God to be successful. Just as God took away Samson's amazing gift, he can take away our gifts anytime that he wants. Paul had to pen 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 because the Corinthians were using their gifts in sinful ways. They were not walking in the Holy Spirit. Chapter 13 indicates that they envied and they paraded themselves and behaved rudely and sought their own benefit rather than that of others and they were puffed up and they were easily provoked. Their gifts were being used but it was pulling the body apart rather than bringing them together. And so when we ignore the principles we've already looked at in, in 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, what can easily happen is God can say, look, you're abusing my gifts, I'm going to withdraw my grace. You're no longer going to have the ability to do what you used to have the ability to do. And I've seen this with people who for years, uh, God had blessed them incredibly with the gift of healing or in other areas, and you see God completely withdrawing that from their hands. Okay, so the bottom line is that we are continually dependent upon God's grace to use our gifts as we ought. And the next point illustrates that often at the root of this is a problem of pride. Successful use of our gifts is not designed to attract attention to ourselves. In fact, even the first century miraculous gift of prophecy was not designed to draw attention to the prophet, but to God. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 24 says of prophecy, if an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is judged by all, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. That should be our desire, that people would be impressed with God, not impressed with us. Well, in 1 Peter 4, the general principle is given in the last phrase of verse 11, the last clause, that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. But in the first part of that verse, he gives two examples of how we can glorify God with our, uh, with, with our gifts. And he divides all spiritual gifts up into two main categories. There are speaking gifts and there are serving gifts. And first of all, let's look at the speaking gifts. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. Now there are a lot of different speaking gifts. There's teaching, there's exhortation, uh, there's uh, evangelism, there's mercy, there's a lot of different gifts. And if we are using our speaking gifts only to communicate our own opinions, we're misusing the gift. We should be spokesmen for God or oracles of God. Oracle literally means a mouthpiece for God, okay? When we speak in the exercise of our gifts, it should be God speaking through us via the scriptures, okay? But that assumes you know the Bible and can communicate the Bible. When you speak from the Bible, then suddenly your gifts take on an authority that they did not have before. And let me just give you some examples. A person with a gift of evangelism should not say, it seems to me, or my opinion on this matter is, or my experience proves that the Bible is true. Uh, no, your opinions don't save people, and other people say, hey, my opinion is just as good as yours. My experience is just as good as yours. Uh, we're not discounting experience, but we need to speak with the authority of God since it is God's word that is the two-edged sword. 
Uh, you know the scripture is true, not because you tried it, but because God says that it is true. And you bring God's word because it is God's word that saves and changes. Now it is true, our testimony gives life uh, and, and, and embodiment to the things that the scripture says. We're experiencing it. Anybody who's been indwelt by the Holy Spirit is excited about the changes that God's Spirit is making in his life. He wants to share those. So I'm not against testimonies. We, we do need to clothe what's being spoken from the word that our experience goes along with this, okay? But our testimony needs to be dovetailed with something inerrant and infallible, okay? It needs to be an oracle, a mouthpiece of God. By being God's spokesperson and sharing his very word, you're effectively using the gift of evangelism. I'll give you another example. If you have the gift of mercy, don't just bring the comfort of opinion, experience, and feelings. Those are wonderful. Those should be brought, but try to bring comfort with the unfailing promises of a God who cannot lie. Speak as an oracle of God. And when your sympathy is linked with the solid foundation of Scripture, it can bring profound comfort because the God of all comfort is speaking through the Scriptures of comfort. Uh, now that prophecy has ceased, and I only see two gifts as having ceased, apostleship and prophecy, the only prophetic rebuke we bring is rebuking with the Scriptures. Because these Scriptures are called the prophetic Scriptures. But there are some people who do seem to be particularly gifted in doing that. It's kind of an analogy, analogous to prophecy. And I have unfortunately talked to some people who believe they're bringing a prophetic rebuke to a politician and they've never once mentioned the name of Christ. And I would say, eh, that's a misuse of the gift. You may have some of that gifting, but you need to speak as an oracle of God. You need to be bringing the prophetic scriptures uh, to bear. Uh, certainly men reject the Bible, but God's Word has a power all of its own to change hearts and uh, to raise the discussion above opinions, maybe even to convert politicians. Now some Christians object, hey, they don't believe the Bible. Why would I use the Bible? We've got to start on common ground. And I forget now whether it was Greg Bonson or Doug Wilson who used the illustration, but I thought it was a great illustration. It stuck with me. Uh, he said, well, just imagine that you're in an alley uh, walking home and somebody is about to try to accost you and kill you. You said you have concealed carry. You pull out your gun, you aim it at them, and the guy scoffs and he says, I don't believe in guns. Well, because he doesn't believe in guns, are you going to lay your gun down on the ground and run away? No, you make him a believer by pulling the trigger, right? And... Um, uh, they said, this is the same way with the Word. The Word is powerful. God's Spirit takes that Word. It, 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 he, the Spirit takes that Word and penetrates it to the heart of people. So what you need to do is make a believer out of them, so to speak, by pulling the trigger, okay? By speaking as an oracle of God. Make sure the Scriptures are on your lips. Now, obviously, uh, the bullet of the Word is uh, only going to hit the mark when the Spirit intends it to hit the mark, but that's the point. We've got to use it to give it opportunity to powerfully work. Now, the second way to glorify God is to make it clear in exercising your serving gifts, this is the second uh, uh, area of grouping, that you're doing it by God's grace and for God's benefit or glory. If anyone ministers... Let him do it 
as with the ability which God supplies. Now, there are some charitable organizations out there that are doing fabulous things in, in medical ministries and, and, uh, and giving money to the poor, and in other ways they are engaging, maybe some of them even have these spiritual gifts, and yet you find in these organizations they never mention the name of Christ. I would say it's a misuse of that gift of service. Christ says, if you give a cup of cold water in my name, you will by no means lose your reward. If you receive a little child like this in my name, if you receive a prophet in my name. So it needs to be clear in one way or the other that we're serving because we love the Lord Christ and because of what he has done for us. Now, there may be better ways of giving glory to God than what some of um, you know, the Christian sports people do out there on the field. I know some of them get criticized by Christians. But hey, the thing I appreciate is they're not embarrassed by God. You know, you might be embarrassed by their behavior. They're not embarrassed by God, and their desire is to glorify God. And I think we can learn from them uh, in that. That should be our passion in everything. If they're willing to glorify God in sports, we can glorify God in everything that we do. So, when people criticize our performance, it can be appropriate to say, yes, I agree, I am not fully living up to the potential that God has given me with my gifting, and I want to improve on that. Or when people praise you, uh, don't just turn down the praise. I think it's appropriate to thank them and tell them that it is your delight when you can do your best for the Lord. Uh, when your efforts to serve are resisted and they're embarrassed to receive something from you, you can say, no, please do receive this because it gives me great pleasure when I can serve the Lord in this way. Let me bless the Lord by blessing you. Now, we don't always have to be vocal, but God desires us to draw attention away from ourselves and to His grace. It's in drawing people's eyes to the Lord they're going to be ultimately helped anyway. Now, of course, that doesn't mean you have to be preachy or artificial, but I think there's many natural ways in which we, it can become evident that you're living for God and for His glory. So to sum it all up, as we advance Christ's kingdom on planet Earth, let's not ignore the importance of spiritual gifts. And as we use our gifts, let's evaluate their godly use by the principles that are articulated in this chapter. And may each one of you find great joy as you use your kingdom gifts to his glory. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. It is our glory to serve you. We are just blown away when we consider all of the benefits that you have given to us. You have blessed us with all things. And uh, Father, we sometimes take that for granted. We sometimes don't even use the things you've already given us as a stewardship trust. Please forgive us for that. And help us with a passion for your glory, by the empowerment of your spirit who energizes us, the same spirit who rose Jesus from the dead is at work in our mortal bodies. Help us to use our bodies and our spirits and these spiritual gifts that you have given to us uh, to advance the cause of your kingdom. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.